0: Make yourself comfortable. Thank you. How are you? I'm really well. Good. A bit warm, but really well.
1: Good, good, good. This is a good This is a good start. Yeah. I want to go right back to the beginning, though, uh, right. and find out where this... Oh, no, we're doing, we're doing a lot tonight. Right. I want to find out where this love affair with acting started, because for a lifelong actor, you started out in another art form, didn't you? Because my understanding is that as a schoolboy in Dorset, Jeremy Irons was not an actor at all, but in fact a schoolboy musician. Is that right?
0: Uh, well, to try to, yeah, I used to play in a band. Um, we were called the Four Pillars of Wisdom. Excellent. Um, and we wore Arab headdresses <laughs> and um, did cover songs, you know, Beatles and Buddy Holly and that sort of thing. And uh, And we would practice in the School time, and then we'd play at sort of deb dances and things in the hollows, and make a little bit, which was nice. And you played, you. Uh... I played the drums and the harmonica. Okay. And do you still play? I do. I'm not very good at the drums, so I haven't kept that up. H- Henry Marsh, who still plays with Sailor, he was our rhythm guitarist and our main singer, fantastic talent, and he was my my buddy at school, my mate. And we had a terrible row one night. And he walked, he had his guitar over his neck. And he walked through a doorway and he broke the neck of the guitar. And he took it off and he said, now look what you've done, you, whatever. And threw it on the floor. And I said, don't throw that on the floor, I'll have it. And I had it and I mended it. And I learned to play it. So I started playing guitar. um, And that's the instrument which really has stayed with me, um, travels with me. And, and for a time, was my way of life. After school, uh, I used to busk okay. on the Quite near here, Leicester Square, did the cinema queues. <laughs> and at that time, I was earning 12 pounds. No, I wasn't. I was earning 5 pounds a week. And I got my board and logic thrown in. Uh, but I could get 5 pounds in a cinema, in one queue, for one cinema. So it was like I'd, I'd um, struck gold, I and mean, it was extraordinary.
1: And so where does acting come into the equation in that case? Because if you're enjoying yourself as a busker in Leicester Square, mm. where does the urge come to then take to the stage? Well,
0: people kept saying, as they do when you leave school, what are you going to do? And I went to a boarding school in Dorset, and I was surrounded by people, um, not the sort of people I really wanted to spend the rest of my life with. and, and they they all had plans to become bankers or go in the army or do so serious jobs. And I thought, oh, God, I I can't. You know, in those days, you thought you'd start a career and you'd do it for the rest of your life. It's not like that now. People chop and change a bit, thank God. But in th- that was what I thought I'd have to go through. And I, I'd i sort of got in, fallen in love a bit with... I, I read a lot of acting biographies, actors' biographies, people like... I remember the first book my, my dad gave me was a biography of Charlie Chaplin. Okay. And I then went on and, and, and read more of Grimaldi the Clown and, and, uh, and many Mrs. Siddons and whatever, MacReady and uh, Henry Irving. And I, I was sort of, without realising it, falling in love with, with that way of life. And I never thought I'd do it, but... Um, knew that I wanted to be, so to speak, playing to the queue and then moving on. And when I left school, I went and became a social worker in Peckham, just at the time they were tearing Peckham down and building those huge estates. And uh, I could see it was not a good idea. But nevertheless, um, I I worked um, uh, for a church, St. Luke's Peckham, and I, who had two worker priests. One was a, so, uh, was a social worker, but not in that area, and one was a lawyer. And so, and so they were working every, all the week, and, and I would do all the things that you could do without being ordained it, it, that they had to do. So I, I would interview people who wanted to get married and set their dates and whatever, and I'd play the organ a bit and um, restock the wine, and... But, but, uh, 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 and visited the sick, and visited the old, and tried to help them sort their lives out. But the, I was always told, y- you mustn't get involved with these people. You must, you must remain um, objective, and, uh, so that you can, you know, don't get emotionally involved. Of course, all I wanted to do was to get emotionally involved. And, I, and, and so I felt after about six months of that that it wasn't satisfying. I was getting nothing back. I was giving quite a lot out. And I thought, I wonder whether the theatre, maybe. Anyway, I found an advertisement on the back of the stage newspaper, which asked for a, an acting ASM down at the Marlowe Theatre in Canterbury. And um, so I applied, and I got the job. And I started working. I think I worked for about four or five months at the Marlowe, and I, I loved the smells. I loved the, smell, the smells of the the the, uh, the glue on the the sides on the on the flats and. And I liked the attitude of the actors. I loved the hours, which were sort of fairly late for me, starting at about 10 and finishing at about two. Um, and the fact that you were working somehow as a group, but, but outside society. Uh, so I thought, well, i better do, I better learn how to do this. And strangely enough, I instinctively um, auditioned for drama school. I could well, because I'm quite practical. I could well have tried to get a job in the drama school as a technician um, but I didn't. Um, so I, 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 most of them turned me down because I had no real reason for wanting to be an actor. And everybody came with these g- great CVs and, you know, they wanted to act since they were two and a half and they'd all been to, you know, they'd done everything. They'd done television shows and all of this. And they said, why do you want to be an actor? And I said, oh, I don't know. I just thought it might be kind of a nice way to spend my life. Um, Surely that's the perfect reason. I mean, well, I would have thought, but it didn't, it didn't read well, you know. <laughs> So they all said, come back next year when you've had a thought of it. Think about it. Uh, except for one, um, the Bristol Old Vic. And there was a wonderful principal there called Nat Brenner, who was a, a man of the theatre socialist um, and a man who'd been through every job in the theatre, actor, lighting technician, director, producer. Um, and and a, a wonderful, wonderful man. And he recognised something in me. And he said, if I can get you to stand up straight... You'll look good on the edge of a stage. <laughs> um, and so I remember my audition. I'm um, doing he, he, I, I, I something from Richard II, strangely enough, which I then went on to play years later. But I remember him putting me in a half Nelson and marching me around the rehearsal <laughs> and saying, now Go on, do the speech, do the speech, just stand up straight, stand up straight and do the speech. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, he, I think, from the end of that realized that probably. I could stand up straight and I might be useful and I had a wonderful two years there. But when I left, all my contemporaries, of which there are many, I'm mean, Tim Pickett-Smith was a contemporary, Christopher Biggins was a contemporary, um, and they all thought I'd go and be an antique dealer because <laughs> I'd, I'd spent most of my time um, buying antiques at the auction houses in Bristol and doing them up a bit and selling them and making a bit. and and buying old pictures and doing them up and selling them. Uh, and so they thought, that's what I'd go into. I didn't show any talent. But for some reason, the company, the Bristol Vic Company, which was one of the great repertory companies at the time, and is now, I'm glad to say, coming up again, um, they offered five of us a job. And I must have been number five, got him by the skin of my teeth. But So I went down there, and as a, an, an acting ASM, which meant that I painted the flats, and I made the props, and, and did a little bit of acting. And that was my apprenticeship. i stayed say three years. And you apprenticed
1: in Bristol, and then you came down to London, didn't you, to, w- to work on the stage in 71, uh, I think?
0: Was it? I
1: think it was 71. Yeah. I'm fairly certain it was 71.
0: Right. Well, I'm sure you're right. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be certain. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I
1: hope you were standing up straight by that point, clearly. I were,
0: was. I was. I, I remember I came to leave Bristol. We used to have coffee mornings with the... Um, <laughs> with the, um, uh, the the enthusiasts, what are they called, the, the sort of theatre club, and they come in her coffee mornings and meet the actors, and, w- and somebody said to me, a little old lady, she said, well, I expect you'll be moving on soon, and I thought, <laughs> hello, hello, <laughs> she's probably right, I've been here enough. So I, I, I did a tour of South America with the, with the company, um, Taming of the Shrew, and Hedda Gabler, and then I came back and I thought, I decided by then because I'm a middle-class guy for all this sort of gypsy living. I'm a middle-class guy and I thought, i met a lot of people in the three years at Bristol, a lot of actors. And I thought, you know, I want to be able to fund a mortgage and I want to be able to have a wife and a family. And I don't think that keeping going in rep, I'm going to ever be able to afford that. So I thought I must go to London and get my name known. So I went. I came to London, took a little um, bedsit in Southwark, and uh, auditioned for everything. I hate auditioning. I was never any good at it. But I thought, I would just got to practice this. So I auditioned for everything. And, and if the job took me, was off for Leicester or Nottingham or something, one of the reps there, I'd say, thank you very much. And if they offered it to me, which wasn't always, I'd, I'd say, I'm sorry, I can't do it, actually. Uh, because I knew I wanted a job in London, but I was practising. And t- to pay the daily bread, um, I worked for a domestics agency. Um, there was in those days, I don't know if it still exists, um, a company called Domestics Unlimited that advertised on the back of Watson On magazine. <laughs> and um, I-, I applied. I, I love their logo because they said, um, a-, a refined lady char from Mill Hill, said, if I scrub the floor, I feel ill. Her employer said, don't. If you can't, then you won't. But Domestics Unlimited will. It stayed in your mind, hasn't it? That's excellent. Very, very good logo. Excellent. And and because because I had a very battered old car, I was fairly reliable, because I didn't have to rely on on public transport to get to to wherever they they needed people. and so I, was, I became quite a favorite of theirs. And I would, I mean, how people live, you know, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> because by the time they called us in, their marriage was over. The, 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 the No one was in control of the children. The house was an absolute tip. And you'd be called in, and you'd have to wipe the vomit off the floor and the dog do's under the sofa that had been there for sort of years. And, uh, and, and it was... Um, it was a great lesson. Of course, having been to public school, I knew how to clean. Of course, of course. Um, so I was very good. And again, I mean, as with the musicianship,
1: is this something that you've kept your hand in with? I mean, could you, could you pop round later? Uh, Strangely enough, today,
0: I was cleaning two shower plugs. Plug Perfect. Perfect. They get terrible, you know, if you don't <laughs> do one of the, I mean, I really, I, I, part of me really wants
1: to talk about, about cleaning. because Yeah, well, of it's very interesting because people, it? you know, they always forget bits, don't they? Don't they just? Under things. Ledges yes. and under things, that's yes. right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Now, music does appear. We've already talked a little bit about music and it does appear to be a real theme. And Godspell was one of your first stage performances down in London. The cliche is always that actors fall in love with the stage first and then it remains their true love. I mean, is that true with you? Because you've had this career which has straddled,
0: straddled, yeah lots of different i never ways. fallen in love with the stage i mean I've had some very happy times and strangely enough probably feel more open more alone on a stage than anywhere else you're completely private and in such a way that you're able to to open up much more than I can in real life um, so i i I'm comfortable on the stage um, but no i never it was never a love affair for me. I mean, it was something that I was comfortable in. I, while doing God's spell, strangely enough, I, I remember sitting on the stage and I was there. David Essex, who was playing Jesus, was there. And there was a girl called Mandy. Mandy. Oh, God. She'll, kill. she'll be here tonight. Won't yeah, probably clearly. here. Um, anyway, she was singing a song. And I was just able to, to sort of drift off a bit and think about the laundry. And I remember thinking, do you know, I drifted into this business, not very seriously. And it really suits me. And I think I've got something a little individual to give. I, I think we get on well. And I remember that moment thinking, yeah. And I'd been in the business then about, I suppose, four years. Um, and I thought, I think that was a good choice.
1: And then throughout the kind of 70s, I mean, you're working very regularly on stage and on TV as well. And then you obviously have this moment, the end of the 70s, early 80s, where, I mean, the first thing that happens, I guess, is Head Revisited, which is what we would now call an event. It was a TV event, I yeah. don't remember. It kind of took over culturally. But, I mean, what are your memories of, of the circumstances? Because I think it aired at, at the end of 1981, but it had been filmed quite a long time before that, hadn't it? Probably. Probably.
0: yeah. <laughs> I think seventy nine eighty sure. we filmed. Um, well, I was doing, pl- I mean, I did a play by Simon Gray, for instance, called The Rear Column, which Harold Pinter directed, and I was doing that in the West End, and it was very flattering, because my name was over the marquee, or one of the names over the marquee. A lot of us in it, Simon Ward, Barry, Barry Foster, mm-hmm. um, uh, some lovely actors. But I thought, you know, it's very nice having my name up there, but it's not putting any bums on seats, because nobody knows who I am. I've got to do um, either a film or a or a television series to get my name known, and at that time it was impossible to get a film because Simon Ward, who played Young Winston, was getting all the roles that I might be right for, uh, so I couldn't. I, I wasn't having any luck there, and I was doing a play in Greenwich called an audience called Edward about Edward Manet, and a friend of mine, actually a friend of my wife's really at that time, George Howard. Uh, who owns a great pile up north called Castle Howard and he he came to see the show and we were sitting having a drink afterwards and he said um, have you ever read Brideshead Revisited? And I said no I haven't, The wars War isn't it? I said no, haven't read it. He said well you should because Granada Television, which I don't think exists anymore, do they? Granada? I don't think it does. No, well it's a Manchester based fantastic television company. Um, they are planning to make a series of the book and there's a great part in it called Sebastian Flight, that you'd be dead right for. So I thought, oh, great, I'll read it. And I read it. And I got in touch with, uh, with Granada. I wrote them a letter saying, I gather you're going to do Brighton Visit. I'd love to be in it in some way. And I got a letter back saying, We haven't got a director yet, but we'll be in touch. Um, but I, I decided that I didn't want to play Sebastian Flight. I wanted to play Charles Ryder. Sebastian Flight was very similar to a character I'd played in Love for Lydia by H.E. Bates. A man called Alex Sanderson, who had a similar route through the story as 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 Sebastian. Like he loved his mother too much, he drank too much, um, and uh, he fell off a bridge in episode eight. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and I thought, no, I want to keep going to the end. (laughs) Um, So that's a
1: seasoned actor by that point. Yeah, yeah, I suppose.
0: (laughs) And I wanted to play. I I felt Charles Ryder. I don't know how many people have seen it, but it's—it's. It's, I think it still holds up, actually. Charles Ryder was a sort of a, an Englishman who uh, he needed an actor who wasn't going to perform, but just an actor who was uh, a very, very sort of um, internalized uh, Englishman, not able to show a lot. I mean, I played others of those roles too, but um, and I thought, I know that man. I was educated to be that man, and I hope. I'll grow out of him, but I, that's the one I want to play. I don't want to see another actor play that and make him, b- with his emotions on his sleeve. Um, he had to be like the good, uh, like a host at a good party, just get people together and 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 enjoy them, but actually not, you know, play too much on the front foot. Anyway, they got in touch and said, "Well, we'd love you to do something. Come and meet us, and and." and and I went and met, and they said, would you do Sebastian? I said, no, I wanted to do Charles. And they got in a bit of a fuss about that. Um, but eventually, we they found someone to play Sebastian, Anthony Andrews, who did it magnificently. And, uh, and I had a very happy 18 months, except for after five months, we had a strike at Granada, a technician strike. So everything stopped. And I had promised a wonderful director in our day called Carol Rice that I would eventually I'd been asked to play this part in a film called The French Lieutenant's Woman opposite Meryl Streep and 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 he said I'd love you to play it and he was dead right because I was very good casting despite how I played it <coughs> um, and uh, 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 but he said I said but you can't well, the studios won't let you cast me because I'm not a star he said well leave it with me and he called me during the first five months of said and said, uh, you've got the role. I've got my star. I've got Meryl Streep, so I can have you. (laughs) And I said, oh, well, that's great. Um, And so anyway, when we had the strike, and we we had a layoff for about three months, I think, and then the producer, Derek Granger, called me and said, can you start again in uh, whatever it was, February? I think we'd stopped in November. And I said, well, I can, but I have promised Carol Rice that... Um, I will do this film for him. And I think we were going to shoot in late March, April or something. And he said, oh, that'll be all fine. We can work that out. Will you come back to Brideshead? So I said, yeah. So I went back and we then discovered that Granada wasn't going to have me going off in the middle, which was quite understandable because the film was going to take four months to do. And, um, uh, you know, they couldn't just stop the production for four months. So it all got very nasty, and uh, I had to walk out um, and, because I felt I was morally in the right. And eventually, Granada and the film company came to a, a, a deal whereby they both took money in each other's project. And, 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 and I was able to do the French Lieutenant's Woman at the sa- within the shooting of Brideshead. Um, which, of course, made the other actors absolutely livid. Because <laughs> they just sort of had to hang around performance, you know, <laughs> while I was off doing my thing. Um, <laughs> but, it, but, but I knew, I knew that, because I was 30, and, and I knew that if I passed that over by being a gentleman, it would have a huge effect on my career. You know, the chance to play a starring role in an American movie, well, American-financed movie, um, which I was so right for, doesn't come that often.
1: And then you have this extraordinary thing, don't you? Because with hindsight, you have, like, buses, two breakthroughs arrive yeah. at once. Because obviously you're, so you're playing Mike in the present day, you know, what was in the present day, and then you're playing Charles back in Victorian times as well. So you have this twin role. Now, for an actor who is quite... You're obviously, you're experienced by that point, but you're relatively new to film.
0: Not that experienced, as you can see, but...
1: Well, you're being very <laughs> self-critical. I mean, I'm interested in that, because, I mean, the, I think the performance, both performances hold up amazingly. But it must have been fairly daunting to take that on, because, you're, you know, you're not playing one role, you're playing two.
0: Mm. You know, the Victorians, which is the period story, they, sexually, they, they, we decided to think of ourselves as sort of pressure cookers. That it was all inside, but you couldn't let it out because of social convention. And so, of course, that made the sexuality and the, 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 the passion so much stronger than the modern stuff. Um, and that was a big difference between the two, because he has a relationship with the actress, and he has a relationship with the character, mm-hmm. and they're different. For that reason, and that was the way we we found to delineate them.
1: And working with Meryl Streep, who at that point, I mean, Meryl clearly as she is now, Meryl Streep was already a very big name, you know, and had already had several very successful and large-scale films behind her. Yeah. So was that a challenge that you felt like you rose to, or was again was that something that? given that you were at a different stage of your film career, yeah. was that something where you were slightly trepidatious?
0: Well, I've always known that to work with the best makes you better. because um, you know, And Meryl, I was so lucky that it'd be Meryl, because she is the most generous, the most extraordinarily gifted actress. And, and she taught me a very important thing, which was the only thing that matters is the work. That's the only thing what you're doing in front of the camera, and that all the other things that surround you when you're making a big movie don't matter at all. You know, the length of your car, the size of your trailer, um, your billing, uh, all those sort of silly things which, which actors do sort of worry about, and, and you know, that, that so-and-so has got a bigger part than you, or whatever. It doesn't matter. What matters is what is happening at that moment when the camera's turning, and that everything you do should be geared towards that being the best that it could possibly be. And she taught me that. And she taught me that you sacrifice everything for that. You even sacrifice good behavior for that, to get that right. Um, And, uh, I mean, to give you an example of how generous she was, she was... She was living in London uh, with her children, two children, and her husband, Don, who's a sculptor, Don Gummer, uh, living down in Kensington, and we, have one, so we had a love scene. Now, I had, I think, by that time, done a sort of love scene in Brideshead, but it was the first, the first love scene um, that I'd done on film. And J- John Fowles, who wrote The Friendship of had d- described it very, very carefully and, and clearly. Um, uh, one of the things saying that he orgasms in 90 seconds, <laughs> which I can understand by the time one gets to that situation with that girl <laughs> in that time. Um, so we, I wanted to be very accurate, but nevertheless I was in, in, incredibly nervous. It, and we were filming in Twickenham Studios, um, and Studios. And, um, well, I would get this about half an hour earlier than Merrill because I had to have the chops laid on. Um, <laughs> I remember when we were Sue Baradell did my makeup wonderful girl she would lay them on hair by hair <laughs> to make them real You know, it wasn't any sort of stick on thing and, and I remember when we were doing a test at my home we were living in Hampstead at that time and um, we did a makeup test and she laid them all on and, and Harold Pinter was there as the writer of the movie and Carol Rice of course was there and Lady Antonia Fraser who was uh, Harold's wife she was also there And and she came up to me, and we'd we'd laid on one side of this big, you know, chop, and and she looked at it and she said, oh, she said, did they take those from other parts of your body? (laughs) Well, I, they hadn't. They hadn't. Yeah, I, was, I needed to clarify that, <laughs> <Yeah>. actually. before Anyway, <laughs> to go back to the story, I, I, I would get to make up about sort of, half an hour before Meryl, because, um, and we shared a, a big dressing room uh, at, at Tennington Studio. She'd be one end, I'd be uh, we had, sort of, big sliding doors in between, but we'd do our makeup together, and um, I was there, sort of, oh, whatever, five o'clock, half past five, laying these hairs on, and she turned up. And the day we were doing the love scene, she turned up, and all I can say is that she was my lover. And throughout the day, I think we shot about two in the afternoon or three in the afternoon that particular scene, but throughout the day, she was, without doubt, my lover. Just the ease with which and you know, the way she touched me and the way she was with me, so that by the time we got to the love scene, it was, felt completely natural between us. And then that evening when we wrapped, uh, she, she asked me around for dinner and I went round to their house in Kensington and there was Don and there were the kids and Meryl was Meryl again. She was, you know, the mum and the actress. And, but she chameleoned, if you like, or chameleoned, I never know what it is. Um, it could be in, either. Into, into, into my lover for that day to make it easy. Sure. And, and that's huge Generosity.
1: I wonder personally and professionally I mean how much things changed for you around that time you have this double whammy you know of, of Brian's head and then the French left woman presumably when you're stepping out to the news agent you're now getting recognized in a way that you possibly weren't before and presumably also there are now offers coming in of, of work which well, I don't possibly... remember the
0: offers okay <laughs> but, but, but I do remember going up to we were as I say living in Hampstead going up to the tube to buy the papers on the Sunday morning I'm coming back with a rack of them, which I don't normally do, because I, I discovered that I was on the cover of four Sunday supplements. My face. Well, that was tough. That was really difficult. I mean, you thought, whoa. Oh, but also, you thought, "Oh." Um, and and um, what I found for the first sort of, oh, I don't know, year or two, um, was I became terribly paranoid. I... I I was used to being private, as we all are. You know, you walk down the street, and and, unless you happen to bump into a friend, that people don't know who you are. And suddenly, people know, many more people than you know, know you. And, you know, if you walk into a restaurant, now maybe, and it's full, maybe there's only one person in the restaurant who knows you, but you don't know which one, so for you, everybody knows you. And I became quite um, retiring. I didn't enjoy that. And it wasn't until I was out in Australia making a picture with Liv Ullman, and we had a day off, and we were sailing and swimming in Sydney Harbour, and I was swimming. Just we pulled in for lunch on the beach, and, and I was having a bit of a swim before lunch, and I came, I sort of dived up and came up and was paddling about, and and um, a voice said, "Hello, Jeremy," and uh, and I looked, and there was a couple sitting in the back of their little sailing boat having their lunch. And, uh, and it was the lady, and I said, hello. And she said, having a nice day. <laughs> I said, yeah, thanks, yeah, fine." <laughs> and um, uh, we chatted a bit more, and then I swam to shore. And I thought on the journey as I swam to shore, see, that's all it is, really. It's just that the world becomes your village. I was brought up in a village. I know about village life. I know about, you know, going up to the grocers and, and meeting people and saying And it's just that that's now much bigger. And you don't have to get in a fuss about it. People know who you are and they probably like you, or, you know, and, 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 and but they can place you. And, of course, what we all want in life is to be placed. That's why people do these Twitter and Facebook things, so that, you know, they have a sort of presence. And if you have celebrity you have that placement. So you walk into a restaurant and you can usually get a table, which is nice because they know who you are and they know your behavior, hopefully. Um, <laughs> and. and you know, if you get in trouble, people—it's—it's it's just quite nice. And if you see that side of the coin, it's great. The bad side of the coin is that everybody wants to know your dirty laundry, and so they sort of pry. The newspapers especially, and, and you have to learn to live with that and deal with that. Um, but, but if you concentrate on the good side, it's quite pleasant. But it's interesting because you, I mean you've spoken already about the fact that you—I mean you speak, you've been relatively
1: from early on strategic and careful and thought out about your career and, the, and the, kind of, the kinds of roles you want to do and the kinds of mediums you want to work in. And a lot, a lot of actors will just say, well, everything happens by accident. And you're not saying that, but at the same time, fame seems to have been something you kind of stumbled into and that wasn't yeah. really ever no. the intention.
0: No. Well, I wanted to get enough fame that, that people would come and sit on their bottoms in the West End to see me do a play. Sure. But I never thought that I'd become a film actor because, you know, in those days, all the successful film Actors were sort of from the North, you know, Albert Finney, Tom Courtney, um, and, and I was sort of a bit, sort of a feat for all that. Um, fortunately, Brideshead swung the pendulum a bit, and people began to want people who could wear a suit, um, which I'm wearing tonight. Uh,
1: very, very dapper as well.
0: Uh, i rather actually wish I wasn't wearing it tonight. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Let me bring music back into the equation as well, because the next film that we want to talk about is uh, The Mission, from 1986. Mm. And obviously, it's very famous for its music in general, but also you have a particular kind of musical role there with, with the oboe. You're playing the Jesuit priest, Father Gabriel, 1750 South American. you sort of pacify and befriend the natives with your oboe playing. I mean, I wanted to, to ask about that, because obviously a lot of actors would spend a year studying the oboe beforehand, and I wondered what your relationship with the oboe had been before the mission.
0: Well, we were filming in Colombia. Now, in the Caribbean lives George Martin, who was the Beatles' um, producer and arranger. And um, he happens to be an 18th century expert, or was, he's dead now, sadly, but he was an expert on the 18th century oboe. So they flew him in, and he taught me to play this incredibly difficult thing, an 18th century oboe. I mean, it's not easy. And they gave me some music, which is what they were going to use in the film, and I learned to play And then uh, we came to film it, and they had to give me a wooden one which didn't, make, didn't play because they had to be broken by the Indians. So so I was pretending, but I was doing the right finger work for the tune that... Well anyway, when the film came out, um, what's his name? Morricone had written all the music, including the piece that I was supposed to be playing. And whenever I see that scene, I wince because I think, no, 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 he's, not, he's playing the wrong thing. <laughs> it's not <laughs> right. It's not what I'm playing. Um, so I'm rather embarrassed about that. But I did learn to play the bloody thing.
1: You shouldn't be embarrassed. You will always know that you—you you know, you, yeah, in, your integrity remains people, intact. You, you've told us now.
0: Uh, I was doing a play in New York. Tom Stoppard's The Real Thing. And I got a call from Roland Joffé, And he said, um, well, well, would you come down and work with Bob De Because there's a part I want you to play in a film that he's going to do. And I said, well, I've got, I've got a matinee this afternoon, but there's a two-hour gap between the matinee and the evening show. So, so I got in the taxi, and I went down to some rehearsal room in, in the village. And, um, and I went in, and Roland Joffe, the director, uh, was sitting there, and he said, now listen, this, this man sitting in the middle of the room, Bob was sitting in the middle of the room on a chair, with another chair beside it. Uh, he's... Um, a slave trader, blah, blah, blah. He killed his brother and he's just shut himself off from the world. Uh, you have to uh, get him to uh, start facing that and doing something about that. So I, I went and, and I, uh, I, I sort of sat next to him and, and tried to get him to communicate and um, nothing, just sat there. And after half an hour, or maybe it was 45, it felt like days. Um, I, I turned to Roland and I said, well... And uh, um, so, uh, so I left. And I went back, took a taxi back up to the theatre and did the evening show. And thought, well, there's not much interest there, is there? Um, and finished the show on Broadway and came back to England... And I kept thinking about the film because it was a wonderful role for me. Um, It was a role, strangely enough, that was written for my father-in-law, for Cyril Cusack, ten years earlier. Um, But by the time the film got to be made, he was too old uh, because Jungle's a bit of a messy place. And so, uh, anyway, so I called my friend David Putnam, who was producing it, and I said, David, well, he wasn't my friend really, but he was the producer at that time. (laughs) um, And I said, David, um, have you cast that role? Uh, he said, "No, I haven't." He said, "I say, so I hear you've done a lot of tests." Christopher Logue, the English poet, had done amazing tests in Los Angeles. He wept a lot, I heard. Um, <laughs> uh, and and who, who wrote "On the Waterfront"? Uh, hang on. It was who directed on the Alire Kazan. Yeah, Kazan. Kazan, who was a great friend of Bob's. Um, he'd also been asked to play the role, and he said, "No, no, no I'm a director, not an actor." Because Bob wanted Roland Joffé had just made *The Killing Fields* with 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 um, Dispran and uh, Sam Waterston, <laughs> an actor and a real person, and it should work really well. And Bob wanted that relationship between his character and my character. Wanted a real person, um, and. Uh, so they were trying real people. And anyway, um, uh, so I said to David, you know, have you cast anybody? He said, no, I haven't. Um, he said, the trouble is we need a young man because it's, it's quite dangerous out there and, and you've got to be very healthy and you've got to be very fit. I said, well... He said, why, do you want to play it? I said, I do, yeah, I quite like to. He said, well, does Roland know that? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I assume he knew because i turned up for the audition. Um, uh, he said, well, you'd better tell him. I said, well, where is he? Uh, he said, he's in Columbia. He's location-wrecking. Um, uh, so he gave me his phone number, and I rang him up uh, a bit later that afternoon. I said, hello, Roland, Jeremy. Um, how's it going? He said, it's fine. Um, I said, listen, I'd really like to play that part. He said, well, you better come out here then. So I said, is that it? He said, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I flew out, um, and I remember before the plane landed, I took off my shoes because I thought, um, I'm working with Indians who don't wear shoes and I, I, I have to be close to them and so I should feel the ground as much as they do. So I didn't wear them again for four months or anything. Um, except for rock climbing, I had to wear sandals for that. But, um, uh, now Bob is absolutely furious because he found himself playing opposite an actor. And what's more, it what made it even worse, he was an English actor because um, the Americans are very funny about English actors. I remember Robert Duval saying to Glenn Close, who I'd just done this play with on Broadway, she, he said, she said, how can you trust a guy who talks like that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so and Bob, Bob felt much the same, I think. And for the first two months of the movie, we never talked to each other. He wouldn't, wouldn't, he wouldn't even say good morning to me. And then we had a most terrible row in the middle of the jungle in a bus. I remember the makeup bus. And uh, word got back, my wife was out there, and bob 's girlfriend tookie was tookie, um, Smith, tookie Smith yeah, tookie Smith was out there and and they were back at camp, so to speak, which was a lovely camp. it was on the ocean, a rather nice hotel, grass huts and hammocks and things and um, and word got back that we 'd had a real set to, and we did I mean we really had it we'd let it all out, no holds barred and um, uh, so Sinead said to, to Tookie, listen, the boys have had a um I think a good dinner might be required. So Tookie started cooking, she's a great cook, and she cooked up this great spaghetti bolognese and rolled a lot of joints. And by the time <laughs> Bob and I got back and we had a splendid evening, and he's remained, I think, one of my greatest friends ever since. See, it's, it's very interesting, because the definitive
1: story about English and American actors is obviously the
0: one about Olivier and
1: Dustin Hoffman, but I think you may have rivaled that, because I had no huh. idea that it had yeah. been quite so... Um, quite so I ten- mean, I think
0: Bob, to his credit, um, probably used the antipathy he had towards English actors in, uh, in the way he felt about my character, because they don't like each other, or he doesn't like my character, halfway till about halfway through. And it was about that time that we had the row. So I don't know how much of it was method, but it was very unpleasant for us. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, I know
1: actors don't think in terms of the, the themes of their career. That's the kind of things that journalists think about. But one of the themes that does seem to have, have cropped up is... We saw it in The French Lieutenant, Lieutenant's Woman, duality and the kind of the double character. And another role I wanted to talk to you about is very much built around that, which is *Dead Rainers, David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers*, mm. where you play twin gynecologists. And yeah. I wondered... What your initial response was when you first had that script, was this something where you immediately thought this is a role I have to play? Or was your first response to actually kind of recoil slightly and think this is the last thing on earth I'm going to do?
0: Well, I was somewhere in between. My wife thought it was the last thing on earth I should do. Okay. She was extremely against it. And I I was a, a, a little bit concerned by the technicality of it because... You know, film is such a technical medium, and and to concentrate into the reality of what's happening is sometimes quite hard. And I thought, God, if I got to deal with all this twinning technical stuff as well, I don't think I'll be very good. I don't think I can do it. Cronenberg came over and um, sort of said, "Listen, will you come and do a test anyway? Come to Canada, and we'll we'll use all the the the, the computer technology with the." twin cameras and whatever, and, and we'll just do it on video, we will do it on film, so it'll be cheaper, but you can see how it is, and so I did, and I tried it, and it was remarkably easy. Uh, the, tech, the technology didn't get in the way, um, so I went against my wife's advice, and did it. I went out to buy my clothes for the Carol Wood with, with the designer, um, on one day for one character, and the next day we went out to shop for the other character, and they built me two dressing rooms in the studios and one carried out on his dressing room and decorated them slightly differently, you know. And, and I remember I, I sitting watching the rushes of the first day where we saw the twins together. Um, and I said to Cronenberg, to I said, this is a disaster, you know. Any fool can tell these this pair apart. They're just nothing like each other. And part of the story, for those of you who haven't seen it, is that the, the two twins must be... Um, uh, you must be confused both the characters on the screen and the audience must be confused about which twin is which at which particular moment sometimes and I thought well you know we, they're, they're too dissimilar um, so I thought I'd do this some other way and so I muddled up all the clothes and made them look much the same um, and found an internal way I don't know where the idea came from but it was a very good one I think it might have been mine even um, <laughs> To, to find a different energy point for each twin, an internal energy point. So for, on one of them, who was Elliot, who was the sort of the, biz- the guy who ran the firm, who was sort of got the customers, and he was the shop window. He was a you know he was a good speaker and all of this, and he had his energy there, uh, which of course is where the Indians have the whatnot, there. Uh, but it's also where you headbutt people, and and it's a it's a it's a hard area, and. By putting the energy there, it gave him a sort of certain land, a certain way of standing and of speaking and of looking. And then the other one, I put his energy point here, which is where you can die, and which is soft and feminine and delicate and vulnerable. And by just switching the energy, uh, posture changed, the way he spoke changed, the way he looked through his eyes changed. And... Uh, uh, so I was able to play the two just, just doing that, which is a very simple trick, but it sort of worked. I think all, all great tricks are simple, don't you? Mm,
1: I do. I mean, it reminded me when you were talking earlier of standing up straight on the stage. And it feels like, I mean, people... You, you mentioned earlier that you were seen as being two of feet, and maybe people don't think of you necessarily as a physical actor, but that does seem very much you know, what you are, and you're using physical techniques to crack open characters a lot of the time. Mm, is that fair to I say? Hope.
0: I don't use them consciously. I'm not one of those actors... I mean, I'm no good at doing accents, and I can do funny walks, but but, um, I'm not an actor who works from the outside in. I tend to try to find what the guy's feeling, and then hopefully have the um, the the body and the face that shows that. I'm not a very good liar, for instance. I, you know what I'm feeling tends to show, and and I think that's quite useful for an actor. Uh, but I don't plan. I remember I did uh, well. I did the real thing in New York. We we um, we opened in Boston, um, and we were we were sitting around uh, my wife and the rest of the cast, and Mike Nichols, the director, and Tom Stoppard, who wrote it. We are sitting around in, in, in this wonderful hotel suite of Mike's in Boston and waiting for the reviews at midnight. And, and we are eating lovely food and all of this, and, and the phone rang and Mike picked up the phone and it was, it was listening and smiling, which is good. And, uh, and Chennair, my wife, who, 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 who uh, can never wait to open a present, um uh said to mike as he was listening he said did they mention the, uh, the gesture and mike went and she went oh and i said what what gesture and she said the thing you did when annie said she was leaving you i said what did i do and she said oh you know you did and i can't remember now what it was but but anyway she said you did this gesture and Mike put the phone down and she said, said again to him, so they mentioned the gesture. She said, they've written a whole paragraph about the gesture. <laughs> and I said, well, what was the gesture? Anyway, it was something very odd that I'd never done before. or, or um, uh, and, and, and obviously, it, 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 it had reverberations for the audience. And indeed, um, two days later, I had a, a letter from somebody who'd seen that performance and said... Um, how did you know to do that when she said she was leaving you? That's exactly what my husband did when I told wow. him I was leaving. Wow. Stood like that. Wow. And I tried it. It was something like that or I don't know what it was. It was something really odd. And, and I tried it the second night because you know, by then it was sort of huge in my head. LAUGHTER and, and I did it, and it felt absolutely stupid. <laughs> so I never did it again. Is that like playing a musical
1: instrument, though? Because with musical instruments, obviously, as soon as you think about what you're doing...
0: I suppose it is. Suddenly, your, yeah. your hands can't do it anymore. Whereas if you're, feeling, if you're thinking what you... If you're right what you're thinking, then your body should obey you. Psychologically, though, I mean, we've talked a little bit
1: just now about the physicality of your roles. So, I mean, psychologically, a lot of the roles that you've played, and Dead Ringers is a, a very good example, you would imagine it takes you to quite a strange place mentally, and I wonder how quickly you shake that off. I mean, are you the kind of actor who, as soon as you're finished on your last day, you walk away and that's done? Or does a film like Dead Ringers stay with you?
0: Oh, I think it... it I mean, you you think that at the end of the day you walk away and it's done. You know, I was... I. I a lot of the Royal Shakespeare Company, and there you can be playing, rehearsing one thing in the morning, playing another king in the afternoon, and somebody else a murderer in the evening. So you get used to putting the characters in different drawers. But but film is slightly different from that because you're always rehearsing. You, uh, you know, you're you're sort of uh, you never have it in the bag like you do when you've rehearsed a play and then open. You're always sort of searching, and so. But but I do find I need respite. And so naturally, at the end of the day, it sort of goes. But rather like a, a, a room which has had a pipe smoked in it. You know, the smell, I think, remains. Um, certainly doing the mission, where I had a big leap, because I was playing a <coughs> Jesuit Catholic priest. I'm not Jesuit, I'm not Catholic, and I'm not a priest. And, and it was a real sort of... I had to really go somewhere. I had Daniel Berrigan, the great American Jesuit, as my mentor out with us. Um, but I, I, I think I kept a bit of him always with me. And also, of course, we were living among the Indians, and so you know my role continued even when the filming stopped to a certain extent. Um, but normally, I, I, I let it go. And when I look back, I mean, Dead Ringers, I find quite high. I can't watch it really anymore. Sure. And, and a lot of the characters... Um, I I find quite creepy.
1: And the reason, one of the reasons I ask, actually, is because the, the next film I want to talk about is Reversal of Fortune. And there, you're playing Klaus von Bülow, who was at that point a very notorious figure. I mean, you know, he'd been, so he'd been found guilty of his wife's murder. This is the real life of Klaus von Bülow. Guilty of his wife's murder, and then acquitted. No, attempted
0: murder. She was in attempted, a coma. That's right,
1: that's right. And then, but then was acquitted after that. And then you play... And these were was this, this was recent events at that point. You play von Bülow in Reversal of Fortune. I mean, what kind of... I mean, research, I suppose, is the word I'm looking for. What kind of research do you do into, into him?
0: Well, first of all, I didn't want to do it because I thought it was in really bad taste. Um, the children were still alive. Sonny was still in a coma. And Klaus was about. Sure. Uh, and, and I thought, oh, this it feels a bit sort of news of a worldy to me. I don't want to do that. Um, and uh, it was Glenn Close, who was playing Sonny, who called me. She said, listen, do you know, if you don't do it, someone else will do it and you'll be very good in it. And uh, so... I, what research did I do? I watched him. There was a lot of television footage of the court case. You know, they love to televise their court cases. and So there was a lot of watching class before and after and during when he was just sitting there listening to testimony. Um, I watched him on a couple of chat shows in America during the trial. He became a real celebrity. He was a... Um, an enigma. Nobody knew if he was guilty or not. And there's something very exciting about inviting a possible murderer to dinner. So he was living in a real social world. He was quite a socialite anyway. I mean, this mustn't be rude about it because he's still alive, lives in London. But uh, he is a socialite. I think he wouldn't, wouldn't mind me saying that. Um, and um, uh, so I watched all that. And, but I, I still wasn't sort of in him. And then I thought about my dad... And I thought, what if my dad had done something? You know, we all trip up sometimes in life. If he'd really tripped up, how would he deal with all this publicity and all this uh, uh, attention and, and, and whatever during a trial? And I thought, I thought he'd probably do it rather like Klaus. He'd just keep his cool, keep his poise, keep his feelings hidden and get on with it, and do it. And I thought, well, that's how, I'm very like my father. So I thought, well, okay, that's what I'll do. That must be how, what class did. I'll do that. I'll do that. And so I, it, it gave me a way to get inside him because he was still alive. And, and I hadn't played anyone who was still alive, I don't think. Um, and it was quite, you've got to take over, you know. I mean, filmically, of course, you've got to. I remember seeing um, Patton, the movie with George C. Scott. Now, George C. Scott is nothing like General Patton. It's uh, a great movie, if you haven't caught it. old, old movie, of course. Um, uh, but by the time you're, you've been watching for about three minutes, you believe George E. Scott is Patton. And I thought, well, that's the trick. Just just carry the audience in. They'd suspend disbelief anyway. Uh, so I thought, well, once I... And, and Klaus, of course, is a bigger man than me. He's older than me. Um, but once I found what I felt he was feeling, and, of course, I also had to work out whether I thought he was guilty or not, because he'd know that... Um, and I talked to a few people I talked to uh, an American art critic called John Richardson who was a great f- friend of Class's and had always grown up with him and knew him well and he said to me he said play him like a bad actor I said oh dear I don't know how to play I don't know, if I can play. Oh, I don't know how to do that <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but I think I must have done because he's a bit like a bad actor
1: and this is the role that wins you the best actor on Oscar as well i wondered quite how unexpected and how life-changing career-changing that was
0: well at the time it was expected actually okay because all the bookies said i was going to win <laughs> and there was just a feeling in the air and you know it has nothing to do with how good you are or not really it's just it's just your time comes um and if the groundwork had been laid i think by by Dead Ringers which had come out the year before and which was not an Oscar movie Uh, it's not a sort of life affirming American cultural movie you know Um, and uh, and yet a lot of people in Hollywood I thought I think thought it was interesting work and so I was sort of in their consciousness and then Klaus came out and uh, Reversal came out and um, I don't know they decided to run with it for an Oscar and By the time you see, in those days, you didn't have to do the whole selling your soul and flying around the world and buying flowers for all the other voters and that sort of thing. I mean, you could just you know you didn't have to do any of that. You have to do it now. Uh, But I I flew in to 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 New York. I was filming somewhere else, and I did the Saturday Night Live, the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life, I think. And then I flew to Los Angeles, had the day before party. And then the following night was the, was the ceremony. And I sort of thought, I mean, I was up against great people. I think it was Bob and, and uh, um, De Niro and Hoffman and Richard Harris and somebody else. The great bunch, you know. I mean, how can you compare those actors? You can't. Um, how can you be better than them? <laughs> you can't. So, uh, but all the bookies said I was way out ahead. And I thought, oh, well, it's my time you know some of them have won, them, won it before so as the announcement came up you know you sit there and you think I must prepare a face to lose <laughs> <laughs> and so you're thinking that and then they mention your name and you think have I heard that right have I heard that right that but yes people think to see it is right so I got up and I, 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 I kissed everybody in sight I remember I kissed Madonna who was sitting in front of us so I didn't know and I nearly, <laughs> I nearly kissed Michael Jackson, who was sitting next to her. <laughs> but I, I couldn't get to him. <laughs> so I got up on the stage. And, and uh, did it make a difference? Not really. Uh, we had a euphoric day the next day where we met up with um, uh, uh, ca- ca- uh, well, a Harold into Mike Nichols, Meryl Streep, and uh, a chap from Columbia, whose name I'm searching for, to talk about making Remains of the Day together. And that was glorious because it was a great script and a great movie. And, uh, and I thought, oh, this is wonderful. This is what w- winning an Oscar does. And Harold and I uh, shared a plane back together. I mean, we didn't share a plane. We shared seats on, on a plane. <laughs> um, and he said, I don't know how it's going to work, this movie. He said, Mike takes so much money. It's going to be so expensive, this movie. I don't know if we'll ever make it. And... We indeed we didn't make it. It was made by wonderfully by Emma Thompson and, and Anthony Hopkins some years later, um, probably a lot better than we'd ever do. So, but but that was sort of that was Oscar, and then came back here. And you know the nicest thing, my work didn't change at all, and I knew it wouldn't because well, there's two things happened. First of all, I had an enormous postbag from my peers from sort of local councillors, from shopkeepers, from, which was glorious. All thrilled for me, and that was nice. Because, um, you know, you always assume that most people think he's a bit shy. Uh, <laughs> but they were all really pleased for me, and that was lovely. Um, and uh, the other thing was that everybody who had a script, which they'd never been able to get made, but thought that if I put my name to it, they could get made, sent me that script. And I had to plough through the most unreadable scripts for about six months. Um, so that changed. But but otherwise, my choices didn't change at all. My fee didn't go up. Uh, but you, it's very it's very comfy place to be having having an Oscar. You sort of feel you've you know you sort of you got a seat on the sofa. You're no longer squatting on the edge of the bench. Let
1: me bring things forward a little bit. I wanna go forward to 2005, which I think is when you worked with Tom Hooper and you made Mm. Elizabeth First with Helen Mirren. And the reason I want to bring that up is I wonder at this stage in your career, obviously Tom Hooper, that was early days for him, and he's clearly gone on to great things since. Can you spot a director now? As an actor, can you spot one where you think, okay, he's going to
0: go a long way? You can spot a good director, certainly. Um, Doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna go a long way. Charlie Sturridge is a good director. He's made some nice films, but he's not flown in the way that Tom has. So, and, and there are a lot of good actors I know who, you know, haven't flown. I mean, you need a combination of circumstances, and you need a particular personality. Um, and Tom, Tom and Charles are very similar. I mean, they're both quite difficult. Tom is really tough on his crew. Uh, and he's very exacting on what he wants, and Charles is too. Um, so, yeah, you can see a good director, but there are an awful lot of bad directors who do <laughs> together work. I don't sure. know how. <laughs> Have you ever been tempted to direct? Me? Yeah. Well, I, I did direct. I directed two things. Um, sadly, you missed them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I directed. Um, I directed Carly Simon in a rock video. Uh, in a, a song called Tired of Being Blonde. <laughs> it was great, it was great, it was great, but it was a huge fun to do. And we, I directed that. And then Sinead and I did a, 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 a two-man show about refugees. Uh, and we did it various places, Oxford and just a couple of performances. But the BBC said they wanted to film it. And it was very... Um, I, I felt it was very, very much a piece which needed the actors and the audience a real feeling of connection in order to work and I thought oh, I don't I think I don't even work on film and they kept on and on and on and I thought oh well oh man uh, I said if I direct it we'll do it so they let me and we went down to Pinewood and we shot it I don't know, I can't remember how long it took a couple of weeks I think um and I loved it I loved it so much um uh I love getting performances out of people. I'm terrible in it um, because I had no interest in... You know, I'd, I had a cast of about 12. I expanded it a little bit. And, and I loved, you know, designing the shots with the, with the cameraman. had a wonderful pa- cameraman. Peter Sushitsky shot it. Wonderful. and Very generous of him. Um, and, and I loved that and getting the, the actors to feel comfortable and to give what I needed. And then I'd think... Because uh, a lot of it was set around this big dining table. And then we get to me, my character. i think, OK, right, I've got think. All right, I'll get in. All right, OK, on me. All right, I'll do it. I, I would do my bit. And then I'd say, right, right what are we going to do now? We're we going to move on to now. And that was my, where my real interest lay. And so when you see the film, I give a really dull performance. Sinead is extraordinary. She gives a speech and it was extraordinary. It went out on Channel 4. Um... And I'm trying to get it out again because it's about refugees and because that is very much a problem and and something in people's minds today. I'd I'd love it to be seen again, but I'm not sure who owns it. So I don't know if we'll get it out again. I'm
1: sure you're both extraordinary.
0: No, I'm really boring. Believe me.
1: (laughs) I'm aware that I've monopolised the conversation, um, I want to throw things open, but first the film The Man Who Knew Infinity, um, which came out earlier this year. And I, I just wanted you to, to ask you about that film, because it was a film that I think you know, really deserves more of an audience. Why did you want to, to do that film? I thought it was a
0: great story. Sure. Man Who Knew Infinity inspired of a mathematician called Ramanujan, or Ramanujan, I can't remember which was the right way to say it, um, uh, Indian, uh, 1913, was, was a genius mathematician, a young man who would dream these equations. I mean, he described it as his god, Namu somebody, Namu somebody, um, would place the equations on his tongue, and in the morning he'd know them and he'd write them down on the pavement, and he filled his notebooks up with these extraordinary, extraordinary calculations, and he 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 had no university education because he wasn't interested in anything except figures, uh, equations, sums, uh, pure mathematics. And anyway, he sent, he was advised to send these notebooks to an ac- academic in Cambridge called G.H. Hardy. who was a great mathematician of his himself, and uh, uh, he sent it to G.H. Hardy and about three other mathematicians. Well, the other, the other three thought it was a hoax, because they were always hoaxing each other. Mathematicians do that, apparently. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, but Hardy b- believed it and got in touch and got Cambridge to bring him over. And this guy—it's a story, really, about a very, very bright, again, very, very closed, emotionally closed um, genius, G. H. Hardy, and this wonderful, vibrant young Indian, married, just married before he left India, um, and about their relationship, which comes together because of their shared passion for pure mathematics. And it's really about the relationship, but it's also a bit about pure mathematics. Um, which I discovered is 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 like art. I mean, it's it's fantastic, pure math. I mean, it I know comes full circle, from. doesn't it? Yeah, it's all you know. They think they think all those figures are out there, and you've just got to discover them. They're waiting to be found. They're extraordinary people. So it was a real adventure for me to play this film. Do go and seek it out. Actually, it
1: deserves an audience. Um, I have hogged the, the conversations. I say, um, if you have a question for Jeremy, now is very much the time to ask. Yes, a hand went up very quickly and vigorously.
0: Thank you very much. Um, I'm an identical twin, I'm really interested in the Dead Ringers film which sadly I haven't seen but I just, it's a curious experience and I I was with some identical twins recently and one said it's like having a shadow and I just wondered what was the hardest part of playing that role? I think the technical bit because I knew how each one felt. I mean I did a lot of research reading whatever books there were about uh, 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 the Chinese ones, Tang and Yang, what, what were they called? Chang and Eng. Chang and Eng. That's right. I knew they were sort of still joined by the umbilical, so to speak, but that wasn't hard. I don't know. I, it wasn't hard, really. It was just trying to get them both, you know, doing their, both their, their emotional journey, which, of course, depended on each other, but that was more in the writing. It was a well-written script. It was based on a true story about the Marcus brothers, uh, who were two gynecologists in New York, who were who were found dead in their surgery after five days or something, um, like the Mantle twins. So, um, you know, I read that book and and which is a little bit sensationalist, but but read all the books I could on about identical twins and and. I'm just sort of fed that in, you know. But I think it wasn't as hard for me probably as it is for you being one. (laughs) (laughs) Mm.
1: Yes, just over here at the end of this row.
0: Uh, Hi. Um, Last night I was re-watching Inland Empire uh, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your experiences working with David Lynch and whether it's tough getting into, like, a Lynchian world because it's obviously (laughs) a very complex film. Yeah, I... um, I (coughs) It's an extraordinary picture in Inland Empire, those of you who haven't seen it. It's like standing in front of the most obscure and enormous and odd modern painting. And you think, oh, what's that all about? And you just sort of, you know, you either communicate with it or you don't. Um, it's quite long. Um, I was working, who was my co-star in it? Well, not my co-host. So who's the lady in it? Laura Dern. Laura Dern. Um, wonderful. I talked to Laura before, I think a couple of days before shooting, and I said, Laura, what's it about this? Because he won't give me a script. And she said, well, I've been filming for a year on it, and I don't know what it's about. <laughs> <like." laughs> so I thought, all right. And I turned up the following morning. He told me I was a, I was a, um, a film director. I turned up the following morning in a studio at Warner Brothers, which he'd borrowed from Warner Brothers, and uh, it was completely empty except for a sort of table that was laid out um, and with chairs around it, like sort of for a cast meeting, a cast reading of the script. and And he gave me this full scap sheet of paper, and I read it. It was typed, I mean printed. You know, I read it. He said, "That's your speech." I said, "What this morning?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "Listen, I take a while to learn." I, 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 uh, uh, he said, "Listen," he said, "It doesn't matter." He said, "What are you? A film director, aren't you?" I said, "Yeah." He said, well, what do film directors have?" I said, "They have notes." He said, "Right, they have notes." I said, we've, "He said we've got walls, we've got screens. We can write it up there. You can write it on the actor's brow that you're playing, and do it anywhere. There's no problem." And he said, "We've got all day to do it." Well, I shot it in about an hour, because he relaxed me so much. I just, I thought, all right, okay, so that's what I'm saying, right. And I, I sort of said it, and it wasn't line for line, word for word, right, but it, you know, was enough. And, of course, only about that much of it's in the movie anyway. <laughs> but that was sort of part of the lynching world. I remember <laughs> another moment where, you said, where I had to sit, being the director, watching Laura um, uh, do doing some acting, and I, and I had to say, cut. And that was it. And, uh, and he said, um, and there were three cameras. Uh, I think two on me, one on... No, I think they were all three on me, because they shot her away. So there were three on me. And they, he sh- shoots some video, so little little cameras. Um, and uh, I was sitting on my chair, and I had my assistant next to me. And, you know, I sort of I thought, well, nice was proper director now. And... Uh, <laughs> And I knew what I had to do. I had to say cut after you know when Mum's here. <laughs> and I thought I'd do that. <laughs> I can remember that line. And they started rolling the cameras. And uh, and I sat there waiting him for to, for him to say action, uh, which he didn't. And I thought, oh, I see what he's doing. He wants me to sort of be natural and just be interesting and to you know just sort of be you know David Lynch and to so I sort of you know, watching and. Um, I asked my sister for some coffee and I sort of checked the time and I started thinking about lunch. And Well, after about 20 minutes, I saw, I saw one of the cameras blinking, which meant that it had run out. And, and I thought, oh. Uh, and, then, and the cameraman you know, brought his eye away. And then the other one did and then the third one did. And David said, cut. And uh, I said, uh, and, and he said, Jeremy knows what he's doing. And I thought, do I? Okay. (laughs) And and I I said, David, um, is that what you wanted? He said, no, I wanted you to say cut. (laughs) And I I said, but you didn't say action. And he said, I did. I said, you didn't say action. I didn't hear you say action. He said, well, I did. I said, I'm very sorry. (laughs) But bless him, because he was David Lynch, he left it running 20 minutes. (laughs) thinking he'll give me something <laughs> <laughs> hmm. <laughs> there's a hand at the, at the other end of the road up
1: there
0: um jeremy thanks so much um deb i remember watching it on the opening weekend at the odin Lester square haunted me um i want to ask you about your experiences of working on the lion king and also die hard with the vengeance of Simon. i mean what were you what were your inspirations for playing the two characters Well, quite different characters. Simon in in Die Hard, you know, Alan Rickman's brother. Uh, I met Alan, the late Alan, darling, darling man, and I said to him, Alan, I'm going to play your brother. I'm going to play him just like you, but straight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In effect, I didn't. I went blonde. Um, I remember jogging on the beach in Santa Monica, um, uh, uh, and, and blonde, short blonde, and... Uh, an actor who I knew vaguely came near me, came up the track the other way up, the concrete bit on the beach, and he, he said, it's Jeremy, is it? I said, yeah. He said, um, are you all right? <laughs> uh, or, or is this a midlife crisis? <laughs> I said, no, 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 I'm doing a movie. I'm doing a movie. So I've all gone blonde. Short and blonde. And, uh, and I found that wonderful T-shirt, which I think was probably the, the best thing I did in the movie, this wonderful T-shirt, which, which Bruce... Um, uh, I mean, is it Bruce, uh, Bruce uh, Willis? It is yeah. Bruce, yeah. Bruce, Bruce was deeply envious of. And in fact, in his next movie, I can't remember what it was, but I remember watching a bit of it and seeing that he was in a turquoise cut-off T-shirt with blonde hair. He was playing me because he could see that it really worked. That's, out, that's outrageous. <laughs> outrageous. Um, But it was was a load of fun. It was my first time on a sort of big juggernaut movie. John McTean and a wonderful director doing it. And I mean, I can't tell you what it was like sort of being at the end of Fifth Avenue in Manhattan with most of Manhattan closed um, and hearing the rumble of 20 huge tipper trucks coming down Fifth Avenue. I mean, just fantastic. And I thought, you could do anything in America, can't you? (laughs) and, and, and it was lovely. And of course, in India, that's what they know me for, for <laughs> Die Hard. I had Die Hard. No, I, it's and they, they, it's the, only, the only thing they know me for in India. But uh, it was fun to do. Um, John McTean and I discovered, you see, those directors, they don't give you any notes. Because they, they, you know, they hire you because you can apparently do it. And they never talk to you. Then you, just, you know, somebody tells you what you're going to do, but they never give you notes. Um, I, he once came to me and he said, "My wife is worried that the audience aren 't going to be able to understand your accent." Um, he said, "But I just say that I mean he said I, 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 you know you know what you 're doing. just do it just do, do what you 're doing It's fine, but uh, she did mention that so, <laughs> so I, I sort of softened the accent a little bit, but but that was it um, uh, so uh, yeah and, and then the lion king, of course, quite different. Um, an extraordinary, because I always thought you you did your mouth in time with the picture on the screen. I thought that's how you did cartoons, but you don't. You you they they come to you with this massive, because it's American. You know, there's a massive group of people um, sitting around this table, looking through screens with sort of everything, and um, artists. I mean, you know, uh, not called animation artists um, and videos and. You, you have a, a great long, uh, what, what do you call it, Scre- you know, seeing all the pictures, so you can sort of see what's happening. A storyboard. A storyboard. A storyboard, yeah, a great long storyboard, and, and, and some ideas for lines. So you sort of know, and you begin to get there, and you, you make up lines, you improvise lines, you play around, you try and make them laugh, you, you have fun, basically. Meanwhile, the, the animators are sketching you, and, and the video people are videoing you, and the writers are, you know, writing any good ideas. And we met about six times over... No, less... Yeah, yeah, about six times over about a year. In different parts of the world, they'd all come to where I was filming, and, and we'd do a bit more, and they'd have a bit more put together. Um, and I, 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 I... When I finally saw the, saw the film, of course, I was horrified, because, you know, they based the... Lion on me, on you know all of that and all of that, and I looked at James Earl Jones's lion, who was big and rippling with muscles and a great mane that shone in the sunlight. And I looked at my lion, you know, you could see the ribs, and he was scrawny, and he was. (laughs) And and I thought, so that's how I come across. (laughs) I was very hurt. But you've got over it in the years since. And yeah. Your
1: self-image has repaired itself. Well, I
0: don't know. There's some mornings.
1: We all, we all have those mornings. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you one final question. I mean, every film I think that we've talked about tonight shares one thing, which is it feels like a challenge and it feels like a risk. And those films we haven't even talked about. Lolita, High Rise from last year. It feels like you're still taking risks. I mean, is that fair to say that I think what, what gets you up in the morning is that idea of not quite knowing whether you're going to come off the high wire?
0: I think I do like, I do like risk... I mean, looking at my pleasures, you know, sailing, horse riding, motorcycling, seems that I like risk, it makes you, it energizes me. Um, And I always feel I can't do it when I start an acting job. I'm going off now, I've just got to finish doing the next uh, Batman, which we finish next week. And then I'm off to America to make two comedies, and I haven't really been known for my comedy. You have
1: tonight.
0: <laughs> what? You have tonight. Well, you've, been, that's good. you've been amazing. So, so, yeah, I'm going off to do something that I'm not sure I can do. Um, and, and that is grist to my mill, although I try and do a bit less now because I'm older and, you know, go slower now.
1: I'm sure we'll all wish him bon voyage in America. Please join me and thank you. it been a pleasure. Jeremy Irons. <laughs>